Hi, this is Brent Milligan. I'm a producer in Nashville, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Practical Worship Podcast. Well, hello, and welcome to the Practical Worship Podcast. I'm Dave Dalton, and this is a show designed for the worship leader that has to do it all and is trying to figure out how to do all the extra things that you need to do when you lead a worship ministry. So we release a new episode on the first Friday of every single month. So if you haven't already, consider subscribing on whatever app you're using to listen to your podcast on, and you'll never miss another episode. Thanks for checking this out. This is episode 27, and today's guest is Brent Milligan. He's originally from Baton Rouge, but moved to Nashville in the early 90s and has a significant influence in in Christian music over the last several decades, playing bass and guitar and cello on hundreds of tracks, and even recently producing records for artists like Stephen Curtis Chapman in Torrin Wells. This guy knows his way around a studio, and even more important for our conversation today, he knows how to work with bands and to work with their song arrangements to make them sound amazing. Sometimes when we're working with our worship bands, There are times when maybe we know it sounds mediocre, but we don't know how to fix it. And what I've found is that it isn't so much the talent level of the musician, even with volunteers, as much as it is our leadership and what we do to build a song arrangement that is moving and powerful. So that's what we're going to talk about today in this episode. What do we need to know as worship pastors and band leaders so that we have the tools and the resources to help our bands sound awesome? It's more than just giving someone an MP3 and a chart. We need to understand the power of arranging songs and using the power of dynamics to create moments and worship sets that are inspiring and then using that information as we prepare for the weekend. So we'll get to that conversation in just a minute. But first, I wanted to share with you something that I'm doing that I've never done before. I do this podcast because I like to help worship leaders like you, and I create weekly YouTube videos for the same reason. And because of the podcast and the YouTube channel, that opens up some great conversations on social media and through email and comments and DMs with people asking specific questions about their ministry. And I love helping people however I can. And I think it's really amazing that God would allow me to have fingerprints on your ministry, but sometimes we get stuck in our ministries and it takes more than just watching a YouTube video or having a quick conversation in the DMs of Instagram to to find the solution. So starting in June, I'm making myself available for one hour coaching calls. This gives us the time that we would need to dive deep into the problem that you're facing right now in your unique situation. Maybe it's finding volunteers or training them. Maybe it's making your band sound better. Maybe it's working with your senior pastor or bridging the gap between the younger generations and the older generations in your church. Maybe you're just exhausted and you need to figure out how to stop doing everything. I have over 20 years of experience in worship ministry, working in and with many different kinds of churches, and I'd love to help you get unstuck 
in your ministry. Now, this is a premium service, meaning that there's a fee attached, and it's not for everyone. I'll still continue to make YouTube videos and the podcast and respond to comments and DMs as much as I can, but this gives you one full hour of my undivided attention And we'll put our heads together to create a step-by-step plan that gets you closer to the results that you're looking for. And within 30 days of the call, you don't think it was helpful, then just let me know and I'll refund the money. No questions asked. For more information, go to practicalworshiplog.com slash coaching or check out the show notes page for this and everything else that we're about to talk about in this episode by going to practicalworshiplog.com slash podcast 27. And now, here's my conversation with Brent Milligan. Brent Milligan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so I need to, I was looking through like just some of the things that you've been involved with, the things that you've played on, things that you've produced. And I, when I first got to know you, I associated you with, you know, playing with Stephen Curtis Chapman live. You know, the one time we met in person, it was at one of his shows. I knew you did some stuff with the Torin Wells. But the more I get to know you, the more I'm like, wait a minute, he played on that? Like the DC Talk Jesus Freak record. You know, you got to play <laughs> on that. I was like, oh, that's that guy. The other day I saw a picture, you know, realized, oh, you were in Big Tent Revival. I took the cover photo with Big Tent Revival, but I was never officially in the band. But did you play on the record? I did play on the record, yeah, and somebody from the record company, a friend of mine, um, called me and said, hey, they've only got two guys in that band, and they need another guy to look like a band. Would you be willing to go uh, to Memphis and do a photo shoot and, and shoot, bring your wife, and I'll put you all in a hotel for a night? And I had only been married for, I don't know, two years, so I was like, yeah, great. Sweet. Yeah, so I went and took that picture, and then everybody thought I was in Big Tent Revival, but I wasn't. But I love those guys. They're terrific guys. Here's what I think is funny. So I I worked at a radio station here in Oklahoma City in the late 90s into the 2000s. I worked for KOKF, which was kind of a... um, like the top 40, the radio would call a CHR station for Christian music. And so instead of like being adult contemporary, it was a little bit more edgier, kind of what Air One used to be before they flipped to uh, to worship. And I started looking at the stuff. I was like, okay, Tony Vincent, Ian Eskelin, Charlie Peacock, Rebecca St. James, the God record. Like I'm looking at all these things, Code of Ethics, Seven Day Jesus, these are all records that we played at 91, and so I didn't know it, but at the time that I was working at the station, every other song I was playing <laughs> had Brent Milligan on it. You don't realize that this world's pretty small in terms of like who's playing on these records. It is. It's really small. Is there any like one particular moment that you remember a lot that comes to mind like during that time when you're, you know, just music in the late 90s, the Christian music and playing on some of these records? Um Gosh, um, it's it's hard to pinpoint any moments. We had a lot of fun uh, making the DC Talk Supernatural record. Yeah, you know, I I just remember feeling really thankful to be a part of that because um, I didn't have a whole lot of involvement. I mean, gosh, I played one bass track on the Jesus Freak record, so it's not like I'm all over that record. But I was more involved on the Supernatural record and. I just remember having a really uh, a deep sense of like, wow, this is, I feel really lucky to be in this room. Like you knew it was going to be special. 
Yeah, because they had reached a place of critical mass by that point. And um, I'm trying to think. I I think I had played, I think I played a whole summer with them live. Yeah, yeah, I did. I played a whole summer with them uh, as the single Jesus Freak was coming out. It came out during the summer, like early, early one summer. And I played guitar for them that whole summer. And so I just, I had a... a a much better sense of what the DC talk thing was about and, um, and kind of the talent level, the visionary level that was there. So I just felt, uh, really like, wow, I I'm pretty, you know, grateful that I get to be a part of this. You also got to be a part of when Michael W. Smith was doing those, uh, worship records. I remember the red one, uh, when that one came out, I wore that thing out. Did you kind of feel the same sense I did, yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, I mean there've there've been there've been a good number of times where I've kind of felt that that sense of oh, you know, oh my gosh, I really kind of can't believe I get to be here and do this. This is the on tonight, uh, you know, on this night, on the night we recorded that Michael W. Smith worship record. The first one, the second one, I mean, I just, I'm thinking, I do have the best job on the planet tonight. Nobody tonight has a better job on planet Earth than I do. You know, just that that kind of sense. And not in a cocky way, but just, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. How just completely off the chain blessed is this? Yeah. And I think that's why I wanted to have this conversation that I think would be really helpful for worship leaders is that looking at all the things that you've been a part of in different genres and even spanning different decades as music has changed and all that, you know, I know a lot of worship leaders get into the position that they're in because they can sing, they can play their instrument, whether it's acoustic guitar or piano or whatever. But now they're in charge of leading this band and having to be able to communicate with the drummer and the bass player and the electric guitar player and and telling them like what they need from them to make the song happen and understanding song structure. And, you know, and you can give your band member uh, an MP3 and say, okay, listen to this and play, you know, play what's on here. But, you know, just at least to some degree, all of us leading worship ministries need to know kind of how the band all works together, how to listen, how to be able to kind of craft those moments where, hey, I don't need you to come in here just yet. Let's build it in and things like that. So when I was wanting to have this conversation, one of the first names that came to mind was yours in terms of like, how are we going to to to, to showcase and teach song arrangement, basically, and how these bands work together. So let's start here. Like with your... If you're working with a brand new band, maybe someone that came into the studio and they have the raw talent, obviously they wouldn't be there if they didn't have that, but maybe they're a little bit green in terms of like how their songs are structured. Or even if you were to come to my church and I'm like, man, I just need you to help me with my band and kind of help us get unstuck. What are some of the, the first things that you find yourself correcting right away just off the bat? Where, where, where are some of the common places that people miss it? Um, I think the most common thing is overplaying and overplaying in terms of what you're playing in any given section or, uh, overplaying in terms of licks that you've learned that week on YouTube that you want to kind of shoehorn into the latest passion worship song. There's that. And then there's overplaying just 
never laying out, never getting out of the song. I think um, one of the things I think of, I'm primarily a bass player, but I play a lot of guitar as well. I'm always thinking, how can I get out? Laying out is very powerful because when you come back in, it's really obvious that you're there. But if you um, if you stay in the whole time, you just kind of become a drone in a way. It's, you're easier to ignore a lot of times. Yeah. In, in order for something to have impact, like I even think about like a song, like let's take some of these epic Hillsong songs that start really, really quiet and then they usually get to some big, huge, massive place. In order for that big, huge, massive place to be a thing, you have to you have to have a quiet moment. And it's it's not necessarily that you got loud as much as the more change that you can put between the starting point and the ending point is what makes that ending point so powerful. So if right. everything's at seven, then you can only go to 10. You only can go like, you know, three notches. Yeah. I think it's really constructive to think in terms of those, you know, the one to 10 scale, where do you start? I talk about that a lot. Um, if I'm with a band in the studio, if they start on a five and end on an eight, a lot of times that doesn't feel like there's enough dynamic there. Because if you start on five and end in eight five minutes later, and there's not a lot of variation, it's pretty easy to check out of that. And so I'm always saying, hey, our job is to take people with, hopefully with the intro, and get them down on the mat and not let them up for four minutes. That's our job. Get them on the mat, get them in a headlock, don't let them up for four minutes. And in a pop song situation, that's what we're trying to do. I think it's similar in worship, but maybe not not a perfect analogy. But if something really happens in that intro that's uh, magnetic, that pulls you in, that kind of captures you, that's great. But I know you've probably heard, and I've heard songs that rope you in in the intro, and then maybe the first chorus hits and you go, oh, no, you guys went there, that's... I'm I'm out, you know, and that's really frustrating for me. So so I'm always trying to think in terms of something in the intro needs to pull me in. The first verse needs to pull me in even more and then just headlock on the mat. But even like, you know, if you use the terminology, like put them in a headlock, that doesn't mean that you like smack their face. Oh, no, 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 not at all. You can do that with a really interesting vocal. Sure. I mean, uh, to me, uh, that. Selena Gomez, I think, has that song, uh, Lose You to Love Me. And I think it's pretty much just piano vocal. I'm in a headlock the entire time. And it's not that she's... uh, I don't feel wrestled into a headlock. It's just really compelling music. It's a really compelling song. It's a compelling vocal delivery. There are dynamics in that song, and they're just beautifully done. And it just keeps me engaged and interested. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. When I use the term headlock, I don't mean that in a violent sense <laughs> at all. I mean it really in a, just a, in an interesting and compelling sense. So, okay, so let's talk a little practical, like, okay, great, I got that. So how do you do that? Let's start with your instrument. If you're preparing, you know, let's say you're going to play, you know, you know, as a part of a worship band and they give you a couple of songs, here's some charts, here's some MP3s of what we're trying to emulate. What are what are you listening for 
in all of that? And how are you coming to the rehearsal prepared, just knowing the song and how you're going to bring your part to it? Yeah. As far as putting people in a headlock. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, if I'm playing guitar, it's a little bit different mindset for me. Certainly, if I'm playing electric guitar, I'm, I'm trying to come in with sounds and parts in the intros uh, that broke people in. I'm trying to come up with something that is really cool. If the song has a piano intro, then obviously I'm kind of off the hook a little bit. But I am, I am trying to have something in my back pocket, whether it's a sound or a part that's really interesting and compelling and will hopefully draw people in. And then first verse, I'm trying to get out. I'm trying to chill out massively. If I'm even playing at all, maybe it's just a texture or something like that. And uh, yeah, I would say on electric, I'm always thinking of what can I play to kind of rope people in that's, that sounds interesting, but isn't something that calls a whole lot of attention to myself. It's just supporting the mood. Uh, whatever the mood, whatever the kind of vibe of that song is, I just want to support that. Um, on bass, you know, the, the hook of the song in the intro is not really probably going to be under my fingers on bass. Gosh, I'll, I mean, an example would be when I go in and play on my worship team, if I'm on bass and the intro goes by and nothing happens, there's no hook, it's just kind of sitting there, even though I'm not really in charge, we, we kind of have a, um, a democracy a little bit on our worship team. I mean, anybody can speak up. There's not really a band leader or anything. So sometimes I'll just stop and go, hey, what would you guys think of, of a hook in that intro? It kind of went by and just went by. So it doesn't really have a reason for existing yet other than it's just music. Let's talk drums for a second. And I I know that there's like a super intimate relationship between the drummer and the bass player. And my main instrument is the drums. Like mm. I play acoustic out of necessity. I play my nine chords that I know and that's it. I kind of think of what I do as kind of a rhythmic tambourine. But my main instrument's drums. And I'm rather embarrassed how long it took me to understand that as a drummer, I really need to be listening to what the bass player was doing and kind of like giving him things to work with and also like supporting him and what he's doing. So talk a little bit to that. What I see more than anything, if I'm working with uh, a local worship team outside of Nashville, you know, the typical worship team, the typical volunteer team, what I experience more than anything is people hitting too many cymbals and playing kick drum patterns that don't make sense. Uh, because everybody pretty much plays the snare on two and four, and uh, everybody plays eights on hat and ride. I mean, there's some kind of standard things, but um, I think it's a big deal that the kick drum patterns support the vocal and support the vocal, uh, the rhythm of the vocal. And I think it's a big deal that the kick drum pattern chill out just a little bit in the verse and then be a little bit more busy generally in the chorus. Just add one more kick or one more subdivision or something like that, at least, just to kind of differentiate. And then the other thing that, uh, that I see so often in, the, in these worship teams is just the cymbal happy thing, where drummers are hitting a 
a symbol on the downbeat of, let's say, every bar or every other bar, especially in a chorus. And I call that the boy who cried wolf because the drummers are hitting symbols all the time saying, this is a moment. And then they play another bar to what well, this is a moment too. And I go, none of those were moments. Well, if everything if everything is special, then nothing's special. Then nothing yeah, if everything's a moment, then nothing is a moment. People, you just you lose your your credibility to create a moment when you've just created eight moments that weren't moments. And so uh now when you hit a symbol, it doesn't really mean anything. You don't have that sense of of climax or a sense of transition in a place of a song when you've when you've hit that many symbols i that's something that really gets on my radar and and you know admittedly i have pet peeves as a musician and if i'm visiting a church or something and the guys or the the girls just hitting symbols all the time that's pretty much the number one way to get on my nerves because again it's just those aren't moments so I'm all about creating the moment. And when the drummer, the drummer has massive power to create these moments with symbols and with dynamics and things. And when they, when they squander that opportunity, I just think, man, what an opportunity wasted because you really can create these, these incredible moments and you can support your worship leader and all these other things uh, by using those wisely. So here's some of the things that I that I hear you saying as far as like okay to the person that is leading a band and trying to understand how all this stuff fits together and they they might be able to say hey our band sounds mediocre I just don't know how to fix it so the first thing I hear you saying is like if it sounds kind of like mud well then start taking notes out like stop overplaying yeah. and maybe have people you know when they are in play less notes or don't play any notes at all and then also being intentional about okay we there is going to be a moment where we go to a 10 or you know we go to fifth gear and 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 being very intentional about okay we need to be at this place here so that means we need to start off at the beginning of the song at a 1 and then by a minute end of the song we need to be at like a 3 or a 4 and being you know thinking of it in terms of like okay I want to get to this place so I need to start here and right. being intentional where those happen. Right. Super intentional. I think that's that's a great word. I, I know personally when I roll up to, uh, gosh, to church or to, um, you know, people are always sending me MP3s to play bass on or, or guitar or cello or, or things like that. I mean, it, that's just kind of the, the way the session world works a lot now. I'm always listening to those or looking at a chart or looking at a song at church and thinking, where do I need to lay out? Where can I get out and create a moment when I come back in? And then I think a lot in terms of gears. Um, So for me on bass, there's first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, fifth gear. And when I hear a song, I think, okay, what's fifth gear for me in this song? Is it eighth notes? You know, is it some pattern that's super busy? Whatever fifth gear is, and then what's first gear? And I think in terms of that, what's fifth, what's first? Maybe first is laying out, or maybe it's just playing diamonds, which is when you just hit the root note of the chord and just hit the root note every time the chord changes. We call those diamonds. 
in Nashville. I think I think everybody calls those diamonds, and hopefully, yeah, that's diamonds it. are a man and a woman's best friend. Yeah, exactly. So I think everybody's fairly familiar with that terminology. So between first gear being either diamonds or laying out, if first gear is laying out, second gear is diamonds, third gear is is uh, playing along with the kick drum, fourth gear is playing eighth notes, and then maybe fifth gear is playing like a you know a really complicated bass line or something on top of the bridge that you only do the last two times that you play through the bridge because you've been maybe the first half of the bridge you went to fourth gear and played eighth notes and wow that really just you know now it's driving and people are engaging but the drummer for the last time through the bridge starts riding the crash and just takes it to the absolute highest level i've got to have maybe i've got something on top of eighth notes this this you know, more complicated baseline that I only pull out for that eight bars right there, just to just to knock it so far over the top, and then I go back to fourth gear. So it's just it's just looking at a chart and thinking, okay, this chart says verse, verse, or maybe it says verse turnaround verse. So immediately I think, okay, we've got a long verse here, really long verse. Because the first verse is 16 bars, then we have a turnaround, then we have another 16-bar verse. I am not going to play a 16-bar verse and then a four-bar turnaround and then another 16-bar verse. I'm not going to do it on bass or guitar generally. I'm going to get the heck out because that's that's uh what 36 bars of music i've got to find some way to to sculpt that i've got to find some way to make that not feel like a long 36 bar monotonous block of music and that probably means getting out uh at some point and then maybe coming in on the second uh 16 bar verse with diamonds or something like that um and then maybe you have chorus. Verse two is generally going to be one verse. Then, then maybe the bridge is like 32 bars long or something. Or you see, a lot of times I'll see chorus, chorus, and I go, okay, double chorus. I need some ammo for a double chorus. I don't want to play both choruses of a double chorus the same. I kind of want to play the first chorus where it's really engaging, and then I want to have a little something in my back pocket for the second of the two choruses. And that probably means I'm going to, if I'm playing the kick drum pattern, I'm going to add a couple of little subdivisions and I'm going to hopefully telegraph to the drummer strong enough to where he's going to add those uh, maybe on his kick drum or something like that. And we're going to take that second chorus of the two choruses and just dial it up. You know, we're going to go from a, from a six to a seven or from a seven to an eight. It's going to be subtle but it's going to dial up the intensity so that the people listening to us don't have to suffer through 32 bars of just of of a monotonous block of music. So I I say all that to go do I want the people listening to leave there going wow that bass and drummer really you know that subtle change they made. I don't want them appreciating that. I don't want them really even noticing. I hope they don't notice. I really want to be invisible. But I want it to ramp up that intensity so that I'm supporting my worship leader because I want my worship leader to feel like he's rolling rocks downhill, not uphill. 
That's so good. Brent, are you ready now for the bonus round? Yes, bring it on. <laughs> okay, we are doing the bonus round in three, two, one. Coffee or tea? Ooh, I'm going to have to go with tea because I'm not a coffee drinker. Early riser or night owl? Total night owl. I believe that. Cat or dog? Dogs. In and out or Chick fil A? In and out. Animal style. Man, you are like, like you, you know your stuff. Like you know what you like. <laughs> You're not hee hawing or nothing. I've been accused of being opinionated, which is, um, <laughs> you know, generally, as a producer, I mean, I, I kind of get paid for my opinion. So that's true. Favorite book every musician should read? Oof. Now you've got me. Does it have to be about music? No. Hmm. Uh, I think The Call by Oz Guinness is a really good book. Uh, that's a powerful book. I'm going to go really strange here and say Team of Rivals by Doris okay. Kearns Goodwin about uh, Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln had just a remarkable American life, of course, as we all know. But I think it was really remarkable how he handled the people around him that he considered rivals. And I think as musicians, a lot of times we have people around us that we consider rivals. Uh, and uh, whether that's on our worship team or in our community, maybe. And I think it's really incredible and remarkable how Lincoln handled that. It's awesome. We'll put that all that in the show notes. Taylor or Martin? <sighs> Gotta go with Martin. First record you ever purchased? I believe the first record I ever purchased with my own money was either Journey Escape or The Police Ghost in the Machine. Both solid choices. What's a hidden talent that you have that only a few people know about? Uh, ten playing tennis, maybe. I've played tennis what? my whole life. Do you still play today? I still play all the time. Do you like play tennis with like other, like when you're doing sessions and things like that? Like, is there ever a break and you, hey, we're going to go hit a tennis court. Do you ever do that kind of thing? No, because, um, no, I don't. I have a tennis team and we play, we're in a league called Middle Tennessee Tennis League. And so we play every Thursday night. Obviously, our season this season has been sabotaged by COVID-19, uh, but we are, our team is getting together tonight to play just against each other and stay sharp. And so, um, yeah, I play a lot of tennis. That's fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Brent in the bonus round. <laughs> Let's switch gears for a second and let's let's focus on Brent Milligan as the the instrumentalist, the 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 band member that you're not necessarily working with a band as like a producer and like leading that, but you're just coming in to to play on a track and you're coming in to work under someone else's leadership. And you've been doing this in Nashville for for decades. When you walk into a studio and you prepare and you're working with other people, like what's your job? Like what's the end goal? How would you describe your job? I, I think I have a couple of different jobs. I mean, my job is is to play well and to sound good and all that stuff. But you know what? I look at my main job. My main job when I get hired is to eliminate worry. And that is my number one job. 
And the way I try to eliminate worry is show up on time, be prepared, sound good, don't look like a doofus, you know, um, don't wear an orange jumpsuit. Um, but, you know, just look presentable, show up on time, be a team player, have a couple things in my back pocket. Like um, if I get it, if they send me an MP3 and here's how we do this song and it doesn't have any hooks, then I go, okay, I'm going to show up with a couple hooks in my back pocket and try to play a melody in the intro and the turnaround and thing. And just, and just say, Hey guys, what do you think of this? What would you think of having this hook here? So I'm just trying to figure out how to add to the thing. And if I show up early and they're a mobile church and they're still loading in, put your, you know, I'm going to put my bass down and how can I help and start carrying bins or something. But it's my main job is to eliminate worry. And I've, I've thought that way. I figured that out about a year after I got to Nashville because I saw, uh, I saw bass players coming in who were coming from these, you know, school of bass, Midwest school of bass. And I go, wow, these guys are you know they've been to the school of bass. They're they can they <laughs> they're can amazing. They're amazing. I mean it. they can kick my tail. They can play thirty second notes and sight read thirty second notes and things. And um, I saw people moving to Nashville that were like that, and they were super good. And then I would see them sometimes get let go or replaced after six months, eight months, or a year. And I would think, gosh, why, how could you how could you replace a guy like that? And I started to figure out. Oh, these guys, uh, I would hear stories, you know, oh, he showed up 45 minutes late to a rehearsal. And in Nashville, you're rehearsing at a, at, you know, sound check or something like that, that gosh, that's, you don't show up 45 minutes late. That's costing a lot of money. So, um, it was, I would hear overplaying, played too loud, wouldn't play that part on the album, uh, wasn't a team player showed up late. I would hear all these things and I would go, uh, oh, wow. Okay. So, so that kind of caused people to worry about that person and whether they were going to show up on time and whether they were going to play too loud or play the part. And so people, I would notice people calling me going, um, Hey, can you do this gig? Well, yeah, I can do that gig. Well, make sure you show up on time. And I would go, well, where did that come from? And well, it came from the last guy not showing up on time. And I would, I would kind of notch in my brain, oh, they're a little bit worried that I'm not going to show up on time. Or, or they would say, uh, you know, if we send you the parts a week in advance, you know, can you make sure you know them? Well, yeah, I can. But why would somebody say that? It's because they're worried about it. And so... My, I, I learned my job is to eliminate worry. So if I show up and I know the part's cold, then all of a sudden, you know, I'm the unknown quantity. I walk into the room, I plug in, we play the first song and I play the parts cold and you see the worry drain from these people's faces. That's what really happens. And so when I started to notice that, and started to notice that if I just play the part that they're asking me to play and play it well and see the worry drain from their faces as they turn around to the new guy who is me and kind of give me a little smile, like, you know, a little nod, like, okay, all right, that sounded pretty good. They're not worried about me anymore. Does anybody want to worry about the bass player? 
No, nobody wants to worry about the bass player. I mean, really, in reality, nobody wants to worry about anything. And so if I can eliminate worry from their life, and especially eliminate them worrying about the bass player, they'll just hire you again and again and again. I mean, they're willing to pay you your fee so that they don't have to worry. And it's just, it's the simplest transaction on those terms. And that's that's kind of what drives me to do homework and things like that when people send me stuff is I really want to show up and eliminate worry and play that first song through and have them, you know, not be worried about the bass player anymore. They don't want to worry about the bass player. They don't worry want to worry about the drummer or, or anything like that. And so if as players we can do our homework and show up and eliminate worry, well now, especially in the in the worship world, my worship leader is not worried about me, the bass player. I don't want him even thinking about me. I don't even want to occupy 10 of his brain cells. I want him completely or her. I want my worship leader completely focused on God and on the people in front of them. I don't even want him to ever think about the people behind him, especially me. I've known Brent for a few years now, and I've been looking for an excuse to have him on the podcast for a while now. So when I wanted to do an episode about working with worship bands and learning the art of song arranging, I knew that Brent was the guy to have on the show. Overplaying is one of the most common problems of an inexperienced band. And as a band leader, if you can work with your musicians to have them lay back just a bit and to make space for everyone else, that alone will make such a huge difference in how the band sounds. I like that Brent thinks in terms of gears, and I think it's a good practice to look at the chart and determine ahead of time what gear you need to be in at what part of the song. That's something that I personally learned from this conversation, and I'm going to start using that type of language when I work with my worship bands. If you play keys or guitar, think about hooks and melodies that you can add. They don't have to be complicated, and you certainly don't want to clash with anything that the vocals are doing, but they can be really effective in helping the song arrangement to move forward and to not just stay stagnant. There's a delicate relationship between the drummer and the bass player. These two instruments need to work closely together. But something that we didn't mention in the conversation is the relationship between the guitar player and the keys player or the piano player. Because they play in the same sonic space, you want to make sure that you're not stepping on the other person. If they're playing high, you play low. If they're playing low, you play high. If they're playing a lot, you play a little. If they're playing just a little, then you have the room to play a lot. If you want to go further down the rabbit hole on this topic, there's two YouTube videos that I want to recommend. One has to do about this idea that music is like a pie and that the more people in the band, the smaller are the pieces of the pie that you get. The other video talks about breaking up music into melodies and rhythms and atmospheres. And I'm going to put links to both of those videos in the show notes. In fact, everything that we've talked about in this episode, you can find easily at practicalworshiplog.com slash podcast 27. Hey, you've made it this far into the podcast. Do this for me. Take a screenshot right now and share it on social media. Let me see where you're listening from and what you're doing right now as you're listening and then post it on social media and tag me in it by using at Dave Dolphin 
okay. And thanks to everyone that has written honest five-star reviews and ratings on iTunes and on the iOS podcast app. This is what iTunes uses to suggest this podcast to other people that have similar interests. So the more people that rate and review the podcast, the more that iTunes is going to recommend this podcast to other people that can benefit from this content. And if you're listening to this from Google Play or Spotify or TuneIn or Stitcher, I'm glad you're here too. This has been the Practical Worship Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dave Dolphin, and let's do this again next month.